So Connor, in in the doc, I'm seeing that you have um, you want to talk about CarMax and and like AutoZone and all that stuff. And I was thinking like. Yes, their companies might be like buying back stock to the freaking high heavens and stuff. But there was this thing I heard um, last week where it was basically talking about how if there are, there are companies buying back just a crap load of stock, they can't be that good of a business and have that like good business model because they're like, if they're buying so much, so much stock back, that means there's no other opportunity to put money in. Like they, if, 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 if this is a really high quality business, they wouldn't be investing that much money into actually buying back stock. They'd just be buying it, uh, they'd be reinvesting it into their own business to feel like their growth going forward. And so it was just like, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts yeah. on those two. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I'm, no, no, no. I, hey, so, I'm, no, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear I, you. I totally disagree optimistic. with that. Really? If, if, you're, if you're going to talk about a high-quality business, what if you find a business that has 95% gross margins, 50% operating margins, 45% free cash flow margins, so it's just gushing cash, cash okay? And it's got, it's, it's, it's got great products, and, and obviously the products it's selling, similar to an auto zone, have ridiculously high margins. Well, that's right. great. Connor, Connor, tell me, does AutoZone have 95% gross margins, 45% No, but they're really, margins? really good. They're really good. Okay. Um, I, I can't recall exactly what they are right now, but they do have really solid gross margins. I, ju I just think, like, if, if, no, 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 no. if they're listen, buying back... Listen, 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 right, listen, right. listen, Jamie, listen. Okay, <laughs> so you have a business like that that's gushing cash, okay, and it has stable demand. It doesn't have to have growing demand to be a high quality business. If you have stable demand where you're going to make the same amount of money every single year for the next 10 years, and you're taking tons of that cash flow and buying back stock, is that not a great investment? I'm not saying that that would be a bad investment. Look, I love buybacks as much as the next guy, but surely I call if, that if, a you, if you have a if you have a high quality, I'm not saying that it's a quality business. I'm not saying that it's not a good business. But if you have a like a really high quality business, there should be some other ways that you can reward shareholders and increase returns other than just buying back stock. I'm not saying that they that they shouldn't be buying it back anything at all. Like obviously buybacks are good, but putting that much into it and decreasing your share count by that much just because you have nowhere better to put it there. Nobody, nobody happen. has that. Help Google. Google has so much other place, oh, so many other places. That's one of arguably yeah. the best businesses in the world. You're telling me that they don't have it better places to put it other than buy backing stock, buying back stock. There are I other mean, better places to put it. And these AutoZone, surely, if it's a high quality enough business, there are other places to put that money other than just buying back stock. I think there's a huge difference between AutoZone and Google, though, in those two examples. Like to be fair, I agree with what you're saying, Jamie, like uh, yeah, I totally agree that for, for quality businesses, most of the time there should be some, you know, uh, net, uh, or NPV positive project that they can do. That's going to bring in more profits in the future. Right. Cause that's basically what a business is. It's saying, Hey, you guys go work hard and make money for me. And I'll take some of that because, you know, I'm funding your business, but at a certain point, if you're a business, like, for example, we talked about WD 40, uh, on the channel not too long ago. What else is there for WD-40 that you would want them to do? Because if I'm investing in exactly. WD-40, and I think a lot of people would say not this. Not every business. Go ahead. F finish your thought, I'm sorry, okay. I'm, I'm interrupting you. You're good, I, I was just gonna say, if you're investing in WD-40, you don't want them to go get into cloud infrastructure and data, like you want them to be WD-40. And uh, at a certain point, 
if you don't have the scale for like, hey, let's, you know, something obvious, like let's make another factory, let's increase our distribution channels or whatever. And if you've optimized on your cost cutting, I think there's a point where it's really tough to do a lot more than return capital to your investors. But again, that said, I think for the most part, you're right, Jamie. Not every business has to be optionable. I think that's where, Jamie, that's where I think you're wrong here. I, well, I, I'm every, not, I'm every, not every, saying every, they have to be optional, Connor. I'm not. Well, every great, every great high quality business does not have to be able to invest in other growth avenues. If you're sitting on a gold mine and you're selling that gold every single day for 95% margins, why would you try to do anything other than exactly what you're doing? Maybe open another gold mine. And if you're AutoZone and you're making tons of money, why would you invest in any other way besides just opening new stores? That should be your only cost to your business. If you're WD-40, and, and until more WD forty, yes, but until AutoZone controls whatever market saturation figure they have, not only in the United States, I don't know where AutoZone operates, but if they're not worldwide, why the hell aren't they putting money in at least some of that money into trying to expand worldwide? Because if they have a gold mine in the United States, the chances are, if they're generating that much cash, they can make it a gold mine somewhere else. So why aren't they putting that money? I'm not saying they have to go into cloud infrastructure, go into you know something completely way out of their, their area of expertise. I'm just saying there are other ways that they can grow uh, and, and create shareholder value other than buying back stock and being optionable. They can certainly, unless somehow they have you know market saturation um, in, in, in Europe, for example, they should be able to put some of that money there, invest it there, and while, yeah, it might not be as lucrative right now as buying back stock, 10 years from now, I wouldn't see how that wouldn't be a good thing if they can execute it properly and invest properly that way. I think Every investment be... is a risk. If you are a business <laughs> owner and you have started a mom and pop burger shop and you are primarily in the Northeast up by you guys, okay, and it's become enormously successful and you think about expanding down to the Southeast, what if they don't like the burgers that you make in the southeast because they like them different that's an inherent risk Expanding well that's why you do west, a shit ton of market research that's why you do so much market research i'm not saying europe's going to be successful i mean the markets are similar to to the point where it might be but you do a ton of market research you invest that money into making sure you have that market right if they're generating so much cash spend a little bit make sure they find the perfect market maybe it doesn't work out right but that's that's the point of investing. No, no investment is going to work 100% of the time, but there's that potential to gain market share and get market saturation in a completely different country, which I think would uh, offer a lot more shareholder rewards than uh, than just solely focusing on buying back stock. But this, Connor, I think this is the first time where we've like seriously disagreed, like so contrastly disagreed about something. And not it's only great. that, but I think this, that's easily, better. That's, that's the way it should be. This is easily the most heated intro we've ever had. <laughs> Jumping right into it. But, <laughs> but through all of this, right, we started with CarMax. I'm still not buying CarMax, even if they're in this scenario. I now have, Connor, you're really zooming in on us there, buddy. I now have. Sorry, uh, I had to move the camera. <laughs> you could. I now have. Uh, uh, you know, I'm putting some money into my IRA account, and I'm thinking, okay, first of all, it's the classic: should I invest now or should I wait and time the market? I know I should invest now, because, like statistically speaking, even if you have perfect market timing, it hardly matters. So I, I should invest now. But then the question is. 
what do I buy? And I've been thinking a lot about um, Google uh, adding more into Tesla, even though I'm pretty concentrated in them already. Um, and, you know, I also got to the point where I was thinking about more dividend stocks. Like you were talking last time, Connor, like we're talking about dividend stocks and fixed income for probably the first time on the channel. Does that mean the bottom is in? I don't know. But I was thinking about, you know, Brookfield Renewable Infrastructure or Brookfield Infrastructure Partners and um, all kinds of different dividend safer plays that I wouldn't normally look at. So now I'm kind of tempted to just say, you know, I should do the opposite of my first instinct and go with a tech stock route. I don't know what you guys think about that. So, so my opinion on that is if you follow your inclination to invest in more dividend stocks, I think you're following the flow of the market, which I don't know if that's the right choice here. Right. The reason for that is the valuations have gone from the non-profitable tech companies, you know, your, your QQQs, and it's moved over to the high valuation in the Dow with your Costco and your Walmart and your, you know, other big retailers like that that are your value dividend plays. And so if you either sell your tech stocks and buy the value stocks, you're following the high valuation. You're selling the low valuation and buying the high valuation. And I don't know if that's the right move here because do I think Costco is a great company? Yeah. Do I think it's worth 40 times earnings? Eh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm 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 looking at some of these um, some of the stable growers and some of my uh, tech stocks uh, in my portfolio. I'm looking at a, a Y chart here right now and looking at price to earnings ratios. Waste management, Chipotle, and Costco all have a higher PE ratio than Pubmatic, uh, which is the ad tech player growing at 25% per year in a massive digital advertising market. So um, not necessarily saying you have to go exactly opposite uh, the, of, of the way the current is moving in the market, Not so, you know, um, but simply making your own decisions, not necessarily um, saying, oh, everybody's going into dividend or value plays right now. That's where I should be going. Or, um, not not necessarily the thing you want to say. Conversely, probably the wrong idea is also saying everybody's going uh, to value, so I should just load up on tech because we have no clue how long this uh, downturn is going to going to last and how companies could come out of that. So uh, forming your own opinions for that. Uh, the one question I did have to have, Zane, if you could, um, if you feel comfortable responding, where do you have this money? What what account are you are you putting it into? Like a Roth IRA account? Is that what you mean? So for me, I, I, yeah, 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 that was it. For me, like my Roth is- How much money, Zane? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. What's the net worth? Tell us your entire net worth, Zane. <laughs> so for, for a Roth, I'm looking at retirement and I want to balance, personally, I would want to balance that with making my- best growth plays so because that's going to be uh, freaking tax free when you when you take it out you're paying taxes on that Roth now and you're getting it tax free when you get out so you want those growth investments you also for personally I would want that stable money that's going to be my huge nest egg when I retire and that's the S&P uh, S&P 500 that's going to be the VU for me because if I put you know money in it now and I just continue and continuously add a little bit the benefit of time and compounding is going to make that little bit that I add maybe if it's only 3000 a month 
or three thousand a year out of that six thousand a year. Um, you know, if I just put half of that in every single year, that compounding is going to do absolute wonders for me, and I'd be, potentially be able to retire just on that S and P five hundred money sitting in my Roth um, when I turn sixty five. You know, twenty five or forty five years from now. Yeah, th- those are all good points, and kind of because of that, I'm sort of leaning towards. Uh, a split of doing some of each, not going all in tech, not going all in dividend, more value plays, but kind of splitting splitting it because we don't know what the Fed is going to do, um, you know, and and we're we're seeing higher interest rates, and we'll get to that later. But the other thing is the average uh, bear market, right? Or not? I, don't, I forget if it was like recess. I think it was recession, recessionary market has ended with an S and P. Uh, P.E. ratio of about 12 or 13. We're still at, I think, 17-ish. So we, I don't know. It just as, as far as historical returns go, we could have some more room to go. I don't put any stock in the charts, though, um, and that's not going to stop me from investing right now. Can I make one specific stock recommendation that may encapsulate everything that you're wanting? Of course. Or if you say AutoZone. Don't say Carmen. No, Accenture, Accenture. Okay. So Accenture is a consulting firm, very tech-focused consulting firm. So they're doing a bunch of work. Were you about to say something? Yeah, my my question is is like more market-based, right? If they're a tech consulting firm, how many tech companies are going to have the cash to pay consultants right now? And there's also not a lot of activity in terms of, you know, IPO, M&A. I, I don't understand the business fully, but that would be my question right off the bat. I think there's a lot of times that you think about, well, so, so there is a, um, there is an outsourcing division within Accenture where basically they're running that division for these companies. It's not consulting work. It's okay. just, this is, we are part of your company pretty much. And so that makes up a significant amount of their revenue, I believe in the 30 to 40% range. And then the rest is in their consulting arm. And if you think about M&A activity, yeah, M&A consulting is gonna be down these next few quarters, Uh, that's a given. But if you talk about other types of consulting, I mean, I think oftentimes when business gets roughest, that's sometimes when you go to consultants to figure out exactly how to navigate these tough waters. And so, you know, this is total speculation, but I do know that Accenture has been a phenomenal company for the past few years. um, And they're involved in tech uh, specifically with consulting and they offer a pretty good dividend. They're considered one of those more value plays, even though they're not really valued like a value company. But um, if you include growth, I do think that that's a decent valuation you're paying for. Connor, I, I, I got a question for you about Accenture. For for me, when it comes to consulting companies, the main moat uh, that I see is the the specific consulting company having the talent, having the, the, the people, the right people to make right decisions and therefore boost its its brand name for um you know for for the business. So Accenture, if Accenture has the best people, then obviously all the tech companies are going to want to consult with Accenture because, uh, you know, obviously best people will likely equal the best decisions. How is that sustainable over the long term? Like, how does Accenture make sure that they hire the best people, not only now, but 10 years from now? How does Arrival not just easily, um, you know, have a better company culture or something like that that's very easy to uh, to create and build uh, and just completely disrupt and make Accenture, insult, you know, uh, 
useless or, or not valuable 10 years from now. So, for example, McKenzie is the name when it comes to consulting. If you, if you came out of the womb wanting to be a consultant, which no one is, and <laughs> no one really <laughs> wants to be a consultant until they turn 22 and they're out of college. Um, but if that's what you wanted, you would become a McKenzie consultant. You know, that's like the top of the line right there. Now, you have a company like Accenture where they're not going to get the best consultants because those go to a company like McKinsey. So what do you do? What do you focus on? I think there is some niche plays here where you're talking about uh, companies that are trying to get involved with the metaverse. Well, that's where you go to Accenture's metaverse consultants. That's where you go to their very niche consultants, which I think is the way to navigate that. That's kind of the moat that you can build up if, if you are very focused in a few individual you know, subsectors. I think that's it's not really a moat. I, I, I mean, but I do think that that's something to consider an advantage. Yeah, that's, I guess I, I think that's some sort of maybe not a moat, but definitely an advantage right yeah. now. The yeah. question I would have is, if metaverse becomes popular, uh, how quickly are they going to yeah, lose no, that, that lead as the person to go to the metaverse? Uh, just, just as as an example. Yeah, but they're building out so much of this. They do so much work specifically, you know, with, uh, with with Netflix when they're filming Stranger Things. So much of that film has been done by Accenture. It's not consulting of, hey, how should we do this? Um, you know, how should we make this business process better? That's like the old form of consulting. The new form of consulting is, hey, we need to do this. And they say, oh, we've got experts on this. We'll build this out for you. You want this you want this CGI in your film? Okay, we'll do that for you. And that's, that's where Accenture takes over and does that. So it's not really, hey, help me with this. It's, hey, do this for me. Yeah, that's I kind of where consulting Maybe is. the sustainable advantage then more than, you know, the employees that they have at any given moment could be the connection that the employees have, right, which is still kind of, you know, fragile, I guess. But then maybe like their access to you know, software platforms or something, right? Say for your movie example of Netflix is like, you know, what should we use for this CGI scene or something? Oh, well, we have this kind of software and we have the experts to get you set up on that. Maybe then that kind of makes sense as a sustainable advantage. But do you guys have any other, uh, yeah, and so any other pitches for me for my, for my IRA? If not, we can talk rates. Well, well, quick, yeah. One more thing on Accenture. If you, I mean, if you're a business and you either have to build out, go hire a bunch of people and build out a specific arm of your business to run this program, or you can just offload it to Accenture. A lot of times the, the, the more price sensitive option is to go with Accenture. So yeah. that's just my, my prop there. Jamie, you got a, you got a pitch for Zane? Yeah, I'm, I, I was honestly stuck between two. One is obviously Pubmatic, the big, uh, one of my favorite companies right now at, at this valuation. But I'm not going to go with that, and I'm going to make a last-minute pivot to waste management because we're talking about these stable businesses that will be around for so long because they have huge market saturation. Waste management, for me, is the definition of that. They lead the um, you know trash management industry, whether it's pickup, uh, collection, uh, also recycling, and and they basically dominate the landfills. And that's some that's an advantage that is extremely hard to get rid of. No, nobody wants a land a new brand new landfill built right next to their house. 
Additionally, it's expensive and extremely hard um, legally, re restriction-wise, regulatory-wise, to actually build a landfill. Um, so with waste management being the leader in North America, they have a robust uh, advantage uh, you know, with, with its scale. Um, additionally, it has really high barriers to entry considering uh, how expensive it is and how hard it is to achieve scale. And then basically the, the one-sentence thesis for, for waste management for me is humans aren't going to stop uh, generating trash. We are going to continue to throw things out basically for eternity, maybe even until we hit that, you know, Wally scenario where just the world is filled with trash. And waste management is there, at least in North America, to uh, pick it up. <laughs> and they're, they're the leader. They generate tons of cash and they're actually reinvesting in their business. They're not giving it all to dividends and, and, and buybacks. Um, they're decreasing share count pretty substantially, which is nice to see as a shareholder. Um, but they're also investing in their future to become more uh, environmentally friendly and things like that and continue to build out their scale. So uh, I go with waste management if you want that nest egg, kind of like that, that S&P 500 position to just sit on for the next 40 years and generate that huge tax-free wealth 45 years from now. Waste management uh, would be my pick, and it is, I believe, in my Roth as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Do you guys want to hit uh, hit interest rates? Yeah, let's let's get it. I I, I put this one in talking about um, federal funds rate, um, and uh, you know obviously the big news uh, from from last week was that the Fed uh, hiked interest rates another seventy five basis points. That wasn't too surprising, um, it, but it brought the Fed funds rate uh, or the, the the overnight rate um, uh, above three percent now. That's actually extremely high when you're looking at the past decade. It's basically been at, at, at 0% for the longest time, really going back to probably you know, 2010 or so. It's basically been at zero. Uh, and so we're looking at these high rates and we're thinking, uh, most investors are thinking, wow, this is you know extremely high. They're, they're really going to just crash the economy. But you need to zoom out. Going back to uh, before 1960, the average uh, federal funds rate or the overnight rate is 4.6. So we're still substantially below the average overnight rate um, for for uh, for interest rates. And the, the the vast majority of the time, basically before 2000, was uh, was above four and a half percent. A lot of times, it was above six percent. So uh, I, I didn't have much to share here, other than you got to put things into perspective. People are freaking out because of how high uh, the, the Fed funds rate is right now, but it's just not compared to uh, in the the past 50, 60, 70 years uh, in the United States. And, uh, you know, we're, st we're still below average. So if you're expecting uh, interest rate hikes to stop, don't. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're still pretty low in the grand scheme. I am. <laughs> well, we we I, can all I hope, think, Connor, but we shouldn't necessarily expect. Connor, I think, I think they could slow down just because we're making our own debt here in the U.S. We're making our own debt more expensive, which is dangerous with the level of, of debt that we have. Um, but also, Jamie, I think what's really shocking people is not necessarily the, the level of the Fed funds rate, but the rate of increase has been so dramatic from almost zero uh, to, you know, approaching that that average of 4.6%. Uh, we'll see if we get there. But, uh, you know, I think one one example that I heard recently was in the 80s, you know, people were people look back at the 80s and said, you know, I should have been buying as much as many treasuries as I could, locking in that high interest rate for no risk. And then 
the counter to that would be we're going to look back at this era of low rates from like what is this 2010 to 2021 and think man i should have been borrowing as much money as possible and putting it to work uh, because it's so cheap um and i think it's it kind of defines where you know we kind of learned how to invest it's so interesting looking at this chart i'll try to remember to throw it up of the effective federal funds rate since like 1960 and seeing just how it correlates to like the big market crashes, like the the run up in the federal front funds rate preceding the great financial crisis, the same thing preceding COVID. Um, not to say that you know either of them were were caused um, by that specifically, but it's just so interesting. And then we think of this great bull run from out of the great financial crisis to you know just basically ending now or ended with the coronavirus pandemic that whole stretch we had such low interest rates it, and and it's something i never thought about at the time but it obviously contributed to a ton of that growth yeah so i i made one point here in the doc about how historically interest rates are still relatively low compared to the average but when you have a decade worth of companies that have been built their valuations have been created on 0% interest rates, on free money. When their valuations are based on 0% rates, 3% rates are significant, a lot more significant than they were, you know, in, in the 80s and the 90s, I, I would argue. Um, and so, you know, yeah, if you look at a chart like this, you can say, oh, this is nothing compared to what it was. Well, Look, I mean, look at the chart for the last decade and how it's quite literally on the floor. Um, and so if you're developing and you're building and a bunch of new companies are coming public and all these valuations are being ingrained in 0% interest rates, got like a 2 3% hurdle rate, then obviously, you know, this could be, this could have a larger effect than, than we would want to on the public markets. Hey, I, I think you bring up a great point, Connor. And I think... We should take that information and not necessarily, um, you know, th throw it away, say, oh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I think using that information is critical in your investing process, making sure that a lot of these companies uh, that, that have just recently been, been built or are coming public are just because they were built in the era of basically, uh, you know, uh, interest-free debt, not... Uh, not making sure that they're reliant on that, finding the difference between the companies that were built on it and reliant on it and built on it, but not reliant on it. That's really where the key comes. So having finding a company with a lot of cash and little debt shows that they're, yeah, they were built, uh, you know, during this time of basically zero interest rates, but they're not relying on that to fuel their growth and fuel their success. Because once these rates go up, the companies that are using that to fuel their growth are going to absolutely flounder. Uh, but the companies that keep a low debt and, and, and high cash profile, they're not going to be hurt as much um, and g given given the, the higher rates, uh, even though they are increasing because they don't rely on debt uh, that much uh, or nor that have they relied on debt in the past. And I think Pubmatic is a great example because this company was built, uh, uh, I, I believe it was early 2010s uh, and they, when they were built. And the, the founder explicitly made the company uh, – 
formed the company based off of profitability, so he didn't have to rely on unprofitable um, uh, on an unprofitable company relying on debt and relying on generating uh, cash through shareholders or debt. Um, so that I, that's a good example, I think, of a company that was built in this era of of interest free debt or near interest free debt, um, but does not rely on it whatsoever, and I think won't necessarily be impacted by these rising rates. Can I make a case for a soft landing? Go for it. Listen to Give me some hope. Okay, it's so miracle. this is something that was that was given to me today, and we're talking about rates. I figure this is relevant to this topic. Um, so the case for the soft landing here, okay, here it is: is you've got housing. Okay, so so housing potentially would stabilize in this soft landing case that I'm going to give you. So housing stabilizes, doesn't crash. Maybe it depreciates a little bit in overall value over the next five years. Sure. Rates stay around three to 4% in a Fed funds rate for, for the next few years. Inflation slowly comes down in energy. Hopefully something happens in, in the Russia and Ukraine war. Maybe we start drilling more here in the US. Energy prices come down. So you take that, you take housing prices coming down, then you look at inflation and it's really not that bad if you discount energy and housing. Yes, we've still got inflation in, in, in groceries and in, in a variety of other specific, uh, specific sectors, but a lot of that is relying on energy. And if energy prices are coming down, that inflation is coming down. So, okay, there we go. There's that. And then we've got the employment issue where... Powell, was, Powell came out last week and was talking about how we need to stop the wage price spiral. And the, the idea behind the wage price spiral is that as low-income workers start to make more money, that obviously makes the company's profits go down. The only way to expand those profits is to raise prices, and it just it's just a never-ending spiral that happens. Okay, what if we have a scenario where interest rates are going up, the economy is slowing down, and companies are looking at the employees that they have, and instead of saying, okay, we need to shed 20% of our workforce in order to make up for margins, instead they say, maybe we'll just weather this storm. We'll accept the lower margins, we'll accept the lower earnings, because we understand how difficult it is to go and get talent. And so instead of having to, do, to deal with the rehiring process in two years, which is insanely difficult and takes a lot of money, they're just going to take the they're just going to take the hit and just keep everybody employed and then we don't have a, a recession for unemployment you know we're not going to see 7 8% unemployment or higher because companies are just and, and, and if you look at the financial health overall of most large corporations in America it's not a bad situation you know obviously you have your coinbase and your latches and all these startup companies that are not in great financial health but for the most part most of the people employed by large corporations in America, you know, those companies are not hurting for cash. I was the case. I, I like the case. I would add to this that I still think a lot of the the hype around inflation is still caused by uh, some COVID supply chain problems, right? I think we are yeah, and supply chain. Well. I think we're still kind of discounting the fact that the the global economy was not shut down, but like slowed dramatically uh, to unprecedented or at an unprecedented uh, effect, I guess, um, in 2020. And we're still kind of 
get moving through that. It's been it's been a while now, but I think that that changed a lot of things, especially in the supply chain. Um, companies are having to resource materials. It became harder to find certain materials, and if you have the Fed stepping in a little bit too early to increase interest rates, I think there's part of you know part of the scenario could be inflation caused by covid and supply chain issues starts to come down the fed realizes okay maybe we did too much and then stabilizes rates i think maybe that could be part of it but also i would not count on the other part of companies um understanding and forecasting the the need for labor because i i think it's a good idea and i wish it was like that but so many companies are just going to hire more than they need and then let everyone go and then hire more than they need and let everyone go and that's just the cycle that that we keep seeing yeah that's that i love your story connor i don't know how realistic (laughs) oh no i i mean i i love the optimism i just don't know especially on that um on that hiring piece i don't know how realistic that Mm. would be what what is a company um you know just walking in to to its shareholder meeting and you know having having hundreds of thousands of shareholders uh, angry at them and they're saying hey we know you know this sucks but we're going to just take some margin pressure for however long <laughs> this lasts um, that's not going to get a good reception and then you're going to see some of these ungodly uh, stock drops and then people are going to uh, millions of dollars in wealth is going to absolutely evaporate including the founders of the uh, the founders of the company that are saying hey we're going to decrease this margin pressure because more often than not the founders have a lot at stake here so I, I love the idea. I wish businesses would do this and just not be in this ludicrous cycle of of over hiring, over firing, over hiring, over firing nonstop. I wish they could just find that happy medium, and then when a recession hits, um, you know, just take that margin hit. But it's just not realistic for a lot of these businesses. First, be, uh, like I said, with the shareholders, but also because it's unpredictable. Uh, that that fear that investors have also moves towards managers. Managers are scared and un don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so they're going to prepare for the worst, cut those employees to make sure that they can survive a year or two from now if it does become really bad. So, yeah. so I, I like the idea, Connor. I, I do. I think that, that, that's, that's the way it works out. If, if, it, if it works out, I think that's the way that it happens. I'm not saying it will. I don't know if it will. But if we look back next year, two years from now, and say, hey, wow, that wasn't really that bad. And great. And, and in that scenario, the markets would be hit hard, like you were saying, Jamie. The, the recession would be within the stock market. The recession would not be within the economy, which, you know, that doesn't – it would more be like a bear market without a recession because the recession is economic related. Um, but that's kind of the way that it would play out in that case. So I don't know. We'll see. Probably won't happen, but we can dream. So, Connor, talk about this consumer sentiment stuff, unless that was you, Jamie, who threw that. That, Jamie, yeah, that's not me. that, okay. I, that I was me. Deciphering what's going on here. Yeah. Usually, if, if I put for the topic just consumer sentiment stuff and I leave it very <laughs> vague, that's usually me. Okay. Um, no, so I, I, I was looking at some Google Trends uh, stuff earlier, earlier this week just for fun. And um, 
don't know why. I was just curious, and I wanted to look up the the trend activity for searches of the word recession and the word inflation on Google. And the results were actually kind of weird because uh, all of the, the market media is basically saying that consumer fear is at like basically uh, all-time high. People are freaked out because of, of this recession and inflation. And what uh, Google search trends were showing me was that really wasn't the case earlier this this year in like June um, and in July and August that was really where the high was for uh, consumer interest in the word recession and when it comes to inflation it's been jumping up and down basically there there are spikes in the chart from what I uh, can only assume is when the CPI gets released uh, you know every every month and that's when that chart shoots up because inflation's been rising but um, in terms of right now Interest in, in search trends for the word inflation are actually relatively low compared to past months. Um, so it's, it's weird to see this lack of interest in, the, in these two key words. Yet when we're looking at the fear and greed index, I believe this is from um, CNBC. I, I think CNBC posts this fear and greed index. Um, that's it's at an all-time low, which means the fear uh, is is much more prevalent than the greed. Uh, for the if the fear and greed index is high, uh, investors are mostly greedy. Um, if it's low, investors are mostly fearful. So we're at an extreme fear um, uh, point right now. And the only other time it's been lower um, over the past year was in May, uh, b between uh, April and June. And so I'm uh, guessing it's about May. But this is basically um, a 52-week low. Uh, so it's 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 strange. I, I'm getting these contrasting views um, you know, from market media saying we're everybody's afraid, everybody's terrified for their lives right now. But then looking at actual raw data, looking at that search trend activity, and that just isn't the case. Yeah, it's high. It's higher than normal. But there have definitely been times uh, just a few months ago where consumers are seem much more afraid than they are right now. And so I guess I'm just scratching my head. Are, are, are consumers extremely fearful, overly fearful right now? Or is this just kind of a narrative that the market media is making up? I think I'd take this a step for, uh, further and look at, I don't obviously don't have it right now, but look at some other searches, right? Because what, you know, as an investor, right, what we think of in, in bad times is, is recession. But for your average consumer, maybe what they're thinking is like, bread prices, for example, or gas prices or something, because that could be something they're associating uh, with inflation. Um, and, you know, for recession, maybe there's another key word that you could throw in there to look at. Um, not to discount this, I think this is still pretty interesting. Um, but I think, you know, as an investor, the word recession, I think carries more weight than for your average consumer, I'd say. You know what's an interesting thought I just had when looking at this is or kind of the idea that you were bringing up, Jamie, on how it's like media related, um, you know, the the sentiment of uh, of consumers is media related. What what was it like before, like in the 1930s? OK, not say not everybody got their newspaper because I don't assume that everyone got their newspaper. But there's like say there's terrible inflation in the 1930s. I think there was stagflation in that period. But what like would people? I guess they would just go to the store and notice how much they're spending on stuff and being like, "Wow, this is this has changed a lot." But today, like Visa has lowered all <laughs> friction for every purchase, 
where I don't even look at the cash register when I just say, hey, I want some bananas, some apples, and everything else at the store, and tap, there goes my card, and I pay for it. I don't look at the prices of anything. And so I wonder, you know, if that's if that's why consumers aren't so freaked out too, is they don't even know how much they're spending unless it's gas prices because gas prices are shown in front of us every single day. I, I, I think that is like a pizza out of the oven. Y'all keep talking. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think that's definitely a part of it. Like there's, there's definitely fear as shown in these trends. There is risen fear uh, compared to, you know, 365 days ago. I'm sure if you look at, Um, you know, trends now versus five years ago, they'd be much higher right now. Um, But I I, I think not only is that it's it's increased, but the media is kind of inflaming that and putting, you know, a a fan to the to the coals, I guess, and making it look like there's a huge raging fire going on, even though consumers are like, hey, this inflation thing is kind of being annoying right now. Like my my gas is expensive. And honestly, if gas prices weren't um, constantly shown every single minute of every single day, I doubt that consumers would be as afraid as they are right now. Because Connor, as you mentioned earlier, gas makes up is making up the vast majority or en- energy is making up the vast majority of of inflation right now and if gas prices just weren't shown and people were just filling up their gas on on a weekly basis and seeing it increase i don't know for me it was like three to five dollars a week i wouldn't i wouldn't bat an eye i'd just say ah i was extra empty today or, th- or this week i don't know and then just go about my day but the fact that those gas prices are televised everywhere that's uh putting a, a, another fan to the fire uh, when it ter- comes to consumer fear. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I've been hearing from Kathy Wood that she thinks she's been talking about this for a while before we had ridiculous inflation. And she's been saying, OK, we're going to have deflation because technology is going to improve to the point where it becomes cheaper to produce these goods and services than it would have otherwise been, which makes sense. Uh, but then she was flat wrong on inflation uh that we're experiencing currently but thinks you know Didn't moving we do forward, a video on that i think so a while back but wasn't this like one of our first videos that we did <laughs> it could i be. swear it was like deflation <laughs> versus inflation or something what a yeah. cold take yeah. <laughs> i think i was on i think i was like Kathy's side for that one whoops yeah. <laughs> whoops well we'll see we'll see there's, there's always the next five years but the the reason i bring that up is because ARC is in the news again, not just for deflation, but because they want to or they have created a private equity fund on top of their ETF business. Now, I'm going to give you guys kind of the rundown and then I want to hear if you would invest in this uh, fund and, and what you think. So it's only restricted to an app called Titan. It's basically a brokerage app. So you have to use that. $500 minimum investment, which means you could be accredited, but you don't have to be. You can do traditional and Roth IRA. Um, This is, you know, where we get kind of interesting to the mean potatoes. So they're offering liquidity, which you're not usually getting in the private markets um, in terms of quarterly redemption. So you can take out investors in aggregate can take out up to 5% of the funds total assets per quarter. So I think that's pretty interesting, introducing some liquidity. And then you have a 2.75% management fee, which seems pretty expensive. But it, I think, honestly, it would be way cheaper than the 2 and 20% fee that, that you know, 
comes with carried interest that uh, private investment funds usually have. Um, and two, two and three quarters is not bad for, for a private fund like this. Yeah, exactly. And you're you're paying for that exposure 70% to public companies. um, I'm sorry, 70% (laughs) private and 30% public companies. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was about. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to rip on that. Yeah, I I wrote that down wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We're selling a private investment vehicle where 30% of the assets will be private. But but I I think it's an interesting play. I don't know. I, I might dabble and throw some money in there, but not right now because I'm looking at their five holdings so far. They don't really interest me. There's, one of them is Epic Games, which does interest me because their Unreal game engine is so solid and it's basically cornered the market. But other than that, I'm going to sit this one out with Kathy Wood. I'll let, I'll let other people pile in. It would be ARC that would time the top <laughs> of the private markets. I swear they. I swear they're ti- They're literally timing the top right now of the private market. Maybe a few months ago was the top. The, the, no, 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 no. Not in the private markets. In the public markets, it was. But the private markets haven't had the hit yet, because they were able to raise so much money in 2021 that they've been just self-sustaining throughout 2022 through this downturn. Only four percent of all funding rounds so far this year have been down rounds meaning that valuations have pretty much stayed elevated and companies, for the most part, just haven't raised any money uh, because they didn't need to raise any money. And so I'm expecting in 2023, when these unprofitable private companies are trying to continue to fund operations, they're going to need to have another funding round. And we're going to see a lot of down rounds in 2023. That's that's my bold prediction. Not even that bold. I think that's, that's not bold. Yeah, obvious think... prediction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're... And of course, Ark is getting into it right now. <laughs> well, I mean, if that might be a smart time, if they're just just starting up and they only have five um, investments right now, and in these companies, six months to a year from now, they're going to be needing capital, and their valuations are going to absolutely plummet. Might might be a slightly better time than than we're letting on. I I was going to rip on uh on Zane's typo because he put in the doc that 70% of the holdings were public and 30% were private where he meant 70% were private. So, um that was my my main concern. I still don't understand why if this is a private equity why they're investing in public companies at all. I mean, that's kind of what their ETFs are for, no? Um so a lot of PE firms invest in, in, in public companies. Oh, okay. So I, I like the idea of 500 minimum investment. I mean, given, given ARC's um, um, aggressiveness, uh, I think is putting it nicely. I would, if I was to do this, I would probably put just the $500 minimum um, in and just kind of let it sit, watch it for a little bit, um, give it, you know, um, a, a long track record to figure it out and then maybe invest a little more. It, it looks interesting. Um, I like that it's for non-accredited investors. Uh, at, at least it looks like it's for non-accredited investors. It looks interesting. Um, and yeah. I've, I've always been a supporter of the idea that um, non-accredited investors can get into private markets. I, right. I, I like that idea. I think it brings on a lot of risk, but it's it's I'm a supporter of it. You got everything you got in finance has been democratized. Yeah, and, and, and it's time private market should be too. Right, you got to you got to admit, if nothing else, I think this is really—I don't want to say really cool of them to do, but it's 
really pushing the envelope and shows like they're pretty bold and they'll go out there and try to pave the way. You know, this could backfire on them, but I think, you know, sticking with a, a flat management fee for a private equity firm is going against the grain. Um, even launching something like this and allowing non-accredited accredited investors, while it's becoming more popular, is against the grain as well. So I would give them kudos for that. But like I said, I'll, I'll probably stay out for now. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to do it for, for this episode of Intern Investing. So from me, Zane, and Jamie, we appreciate you guys. If you're still listening, which there may be like two or three of you at this point. <laughs> After 48 we, minutes. We love you, and y'all are the best subscribers that we have. Um, <laughs> you know, we do, we do this for fun every week, but you guys make it enjoyable. And if you're interested and in, in somehow you haven't subscribed – throughout 50 minutes of this podcast or YouTube video, please go on over to YouTube and check out our channel, Intern Investing, and go subscribe because at 1,000 subscribers, we're going to release uh, our portfolio holdings. So I think that would be valuable to a lot of viewers. So anyways, we'll catch you next time.